Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's your favorite <laughs> Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Janelle. I'm Vicky. We're here to talk about murder and stuff. Yay. Hope you loved that opening. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it sounded so strained. I know. <laughs> um, so welcome to our show. If this is your first time listening, this is a special hello to you. Uh, we've got another great show for you. Do. Again, feels like we're returning to our roots in this episode a little bit. Yeah, just a touch. Yeah, <laughs> I dig it. I dig it. Um, before we get to that, though, let's head over to the newsroom. This week, our news comes from NBC News, where in early February, a man named Christopher Erlbacher was convicted of first-degree murder of Caleb Solberg in Iowa. Erlbacher was sentenced to a mandatory life sentence. The entire ordeal stemmed from an argument over mayonnaise. Yeah. Which, I get it. I can I can see that. Mayonnaise is my favorite condiment. Isn't? Is. Oh, is. Okay. Is. <laughs> is, yeah, mayonnaise is my favorite is condiment. Is your favorite condiment. Okay. If people... If you talk to people Condiments that I know. are hot takes, you know? Yes. Ketchup, yes. also another one. Is that a hot take? Oh, yeah. People absolutely despise ketchup outside the Midwest. Oh. <laughs> well, fuck you guys. I like ketchup, too. I don't know. I'm just, we're just a condiment-filled it's nation, true. okay? It's true. We need all those condiments for our salads. <laughs> yes. We need to get by all of the sadness by putting a little sauce on it. Yes. Sadness <laughs> sauce. <laughs> So, according to NBC News, quote, investigators have said the men were eating and drinking at a Moorhead bar the night of December 17th, 2020, when Erlbacher put mayonnaise on Solberg's food. A fistfight between the two men ensued, and Erlbacher left in his truck, making threats to hurt Solberg and others. Later that night, wow. Erlbacher spotted Solberg outside a cafe in Pisgah and ran him down with his truck. He doubled back and ran over Solberg twice to make sure... 
Why do I see a dually with truck nuts? <laughs> I would not be surprised. <laughs> Confederate flag in the back. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Mud flaps with ladies on them. Mm-hmm. Yep. We're getting it. So he doubled back, <laughs> ran over Solberg twice more to make sure Solberg was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's serving a life sentence for murder. All over mayonnaise. All over mayonnaise. Do you know that there is a thing out now called mayo chup? Uh, yeah, it's like the ketchup mayo. It's ketchup and mayonnaise already yeah. blended together. Or if you watch Step Brothers Special Sauce. I mean, it is basically... <laughs> it's, you know what? Thousand Island dressing. This might be another Minus hot... the relish. I was going to say, this might be another hot take, but... That's Big Mac sauce. <laughs> mayo and ketchup? Love it. That's what my... Love it mixed together. That was my hamburger condiment choice. Yeah. With pickles. Ketchup, pickles, mayo. That's Tomato, what I get on all my burgers. Tomatoes, lettuce. Yep. Mm-hmm. Nope. Everything but mustard. Ketchup, ketchup, pickles, mayo. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Literally everything but mustard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Let's move on to Netflix and Kill. This week we are talking about Dig Deeper, The Disappearance of Bridget Meyer. Um, so this is a German documentary series that looks at the disappearance of Bridget Meyer. She had been in the midst of a divorce from her wealthy husband when she went missing in 1989. Police almost immediately looked at her husband, due in part to his already existing relationship with another woman, but he was eventually ruled out. There were many issues with the case, the largest seeming to be the police focusing on other things, like it just wasn't top priority. There were other murders that they thought might be connected, and they kind of Mm. shifted the focus away from a disappearance. Meyer's brother, who was also a police chief, but he was in another district, so he wasn't allowed to investigate. He was actually the only one to make any headway into the investigation in nearly, um, when he started his own investigation nearly 28 years later. A real break in the case came in 2017 when Meyer's remains were found under a concrete floor of a garage in a house on the outskirts of Lunenburg. An autopsy found she had been shot. The house belonged to gardener Kurt Werner Wichman, who had met Meyer at a birthday party a few weeks before her disappearance, and he, at the time, was not questioned. When they searched his house, authorities, even all these years later, found weapons, sedatives, and a torture room. And although this all seemed pretty damning, Wichman hung himself while he was in police custody. Interesting story. It's four episodes. They're an hour each, so pretty quick. German, so expect subtitles. Um, Have you watched this one yet? Mm -mm, No. Definitely interesting. I think just the way the police handled the investigation is like very questionable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But worth a watch. Okay. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Because what are we talking about today, Janelle? Crimes. Murder. (laughs) (laughs) Horrible crimes. Uh, Horrible murder. We're going to take a little trip back. And revisit something that we have talked about. Actually, I think a couple times. Yes. Pretty sure we've done like two episodes like this. Yes. <laughs> We're going to go uh, look at death penalty again. Yes. And this, we've probably <laughs> done this a number of times because this is one of the things that I'm pretty passionate about. Like, mm-hmm. uh, my stance is against death penalty for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm only okay if it's a guillotine. <laughs> <laughs> Only if it's a cool execution. Yeah, garrot the world. No, (laughs) garrot. Oh my Uh, god, good times. Yeah, the death penalty has had like a really historical ride. There has been highs. Yes, there's been lows. There's been garrots. None. They probably more lows than highs, but yeah. Um, I mean, there used to be like public execution times where Mm -hmm. that was like the main form of entertainment. 
to super torturous means of death. Yes. Um, lots of flip-flopping of statutes. It's been all over the place. And there's a lot of feelings involved in this, you know, kind of punishment. Yes. And the history is really fucked in and of itself. But did you know <laughs> that people with mental handicaps could be executed for crimes up until 1989? Yes. I did Ew. know that, which is really fucked up. Ew. And we know there's been many, many, many people wrongfully executed. That's a fact. Yes. Statistics. Yeah. Uh, but the death penalty in the U.S. has had an approximate 10-year period of inactivity from 1968 to 1977. So we're going to look at that a little bit. Okay. In my case. Okay. Um, it started with the landmark case Furman versus Georgia, and the Supreme Court decided to effectively void 40 death penalty statutes and suspend the death penalty. So people were off the hook. Things got commuted to life sentences. Yeah. It was all yeah. was well in the world for those short, short years. The death penalty qualified as cruel and unusual punishment. So primarily because states used capital punishment in arbitrary and capricious ways, and especially in regards to race. Yes. And <laughs> what, at this point in time, they were still using the electric chair. Yes. Also. I don't think that. And gas chamber. I yeah. Think. And yeah. there were still some places who did firing squads. That was an option. Yeah. Um, we'll take a look at that. Yeah. But it didn't last long. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, in 1976, uh, with 66% of Americans supporting the death penalty, <laughs> the court ended the constitutional ban on capital punishment. And for that short time, this act was unconstitutional. It would remain that way for long. This is where the case comes in that we're, okay. that we're covering. Now, you may have heard of this man's name if you're a fan of punk rock music. Okay. The adverts had a song entitled Looking Through Gary Gilmore's Eyes. Okay. <laughs> Which kind of gives you an internal dialogue to the man on his way to execution. I'm going to play a, a short snippet and then I'm going to read some lyrics. Are you ready? Okay. So punk rock. <laughs> Very catchy. <laughs> it's one of my favorite advert songs. <laughs> it's very, um, it, it kind of reminds me of something that would be at the beginning of a horror movie. Oh, yeah. That is <laughs> like sort of a punky kind of, yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I get that yes. vibe. I get it. So some of the other lyrics uh, are interesting. It's, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, they're peeling bandages, wincing in the light. The nurse is looking anxious and she's quivering at the fright. She's looking through Gary Gilmore's eyes, guys. Um, so it basically kind of describes the feeling of having to go to your death. Yeah. A lot of times before you are executed, they give you a physical exam, which is stupid. <laughs> because if you're sick... They don't execute you. Right. What? 
Well, that all plays into that um, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. It's a topsy-turvy world. It is. Um, but I listened to that song ages and ages ago when I was in high school because I, obviously, if you've ever heard a single episode of this podcast, it was punk as fuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the adverts, that's like one of my favorite advert songs. And... If you're, you know, weren't born or alive in the 70s, you're probably like, who the fuck is Gary Gilmore? Or if you've ever studied the law, you know, you'd know who that is. Yes. But upon further examination after listening to this song, I was like, oh, okay. And then put it in the back of my brain for a thousand years. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. And then this song came on because I haven't, like, saved as one of my songs in my uh, list. And it came on. I'm like, oh, yeah. (laughs) So thank you, adverts, for re-inspiring me. (laughs) Yes. Okay. All right. I'm ready for it. All right. So Gary Gilmore was the first person in the United States to be executed since the SCOTUS issued its decision in Greg versus Georgia. So they reinstated the death penalty. He was the first person to go. Why do you care? Well, it was in the manner in which he decided to die that was interesting. So, okay. Let's go into the case. Let's okay. not reveal all the cards. I'm ready. Gilmore was born in Texas. That's under- all I need to know. <laughs> <Yeah>. No. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> did he die in Texas? Yes. Oh. No. Ooh. <laughs> he was born under the name Faye Robert Kaufman. Now, this was due to the fact that his father was a straight up criminal. Oh, and Kaufman was a pseudonym that his father used to avoid the law. So not his real name. Okay. Now, Gary's father was like a super big asshole, really bad at being a criminal. (laughs) You are not pulling any punches. Not good at all at anything. Um, He was a fake magazine salesman. (laughs) And just like a regular plain dumb con man, like not good at conning. He was extremely abusive to his uh, wife and children. He would beat them with a leather strap. Oh, my God. Texas. Yeah. <laughs> For real. Um, 20 years later, when Gilmore was an adult, he would find his original birth certificate with the fake last name which was used, and it led him to believe that he had a different father. So he didn't know his name was an alias. He did not know that his name was an alias. And the truth, of course, was that he just had a fake name. But this would cause a big rift in his family. Wow. And we're going to go back a little bit to look at his criminal past. Gilmore started his life as a petty criminal, stealing as a teenager. When your dad's a con man, the likelihood of you also doing some cons is pretty high. Right. Um, And also, it's Texas, so you're probably bored. (laughs) What else is there to do? Uh Shoot guns, steal stuff. Um, He reportedly was very, very smart, scoring 132 on his IG test, and he was supposedly like a super talented artist. But as artists go, because I am one, <laughs> he was also very bored all of the time. <laughs> you know, artists. And he decided to drop out of school. I had a moment. I hear you. Almost. It's very tempting. I almost yes. dropped out of high school several times because I just fucking couldn't stand living here. Yeah, um, I get it. But I fair. I went through it. Yeah. And then I went to college a thousand times and got a yeah. hundred degrees. ending school. Now I just have so many degrees. It's it's the opposite effect. <laughs> Now, he started a small car theft ring at the age of 14. Okay. Which, uh, kudos on you. Yeah. Most people can't drive at 14, but okay. Um, He was arrested twice for this. Uh, The first time he got a pass, 
Um, as long as he crossed his fingers and hoped to die, he wouldn't do it again. They oh gave him a chance. They're okay. like, boys will be boys. Yeah, exactly. Boys will be boys. This is Texas. You're a white guy. Here's your first strike. Okay. <laughs> the second time, they sent his ass straight to juvie. Good. <laughs> so, uh, oh, here comes a third charge. Couldn't oh. stop stealing cars. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> he went to big boy prison the third time, uh, but was released only after a year. Was he still 14? Did he get charged all three uh, times No, I think he was 17 at okay. this time. Okay. He then briefly moved to Portland, Oregon, which is like where every one of my exes ever went. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't know what that says about Portland, but... Portland. <laughs> The land of misfits. Um, he was arrested there for driving without a license. Okay. Um, during his time in jail, his father died abruptly. And in a weird twist, which is often what happens to children who are abused repeatedly, he went into this tailspin and, like, had an identity crisis and tried to kill himself. Okay. And that happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, he then became even more of a hardened criminal. He's like, I'm going to follow in daddy's footsteps. <laughs> except I'm going to be good at it. He was not. Oh, um, He started robbing more and getting shit-faced drunk at the same time. Because that helps. <laughs> because nothing is better at helping you do crimes than, than being, being wasted. Wasted. <laughs> he was then arrested in Oregon again for assault and armed robbery. So definitely upping the game, getting a little bit more vicious. This being the 60s, he was sentenced to 15 years, but after being seen by a prison psychiatrist, was deemed to be, quote, unquote, troubled. <laughs> okay. What, is that, what does that even mean? He's a troubled boy. Troubled. Um, the psychiatrist diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder with intermittent psychotic decom- decompensation. So, I mean, teenagers are antisocial and... Just because you shoplifted, like, some black nail polish and was heckin' goth, I guess, you know. Times have changed. Devil worship. (laughs) It's the work of Satan. Who wasn't a teenager who attempted to steal something or did steal something? I first stole something when I was, like, seven. Penny candy out of the Brock's candy holder in the middle of the grocery store. It was butterscotch. (laughs) Girl, you bad. It was five cents. I was like, I could pay that five cents or I could just take the fucking candy. (laughs) (laughs) So... Um, He was given a conditional release in 1972 and sent to a halfway house. But him being so antisocial, he fucked it up right away and was like, just kidding. I'm never going there. So he never went to the halfway house and then immediately was arrested like a day later for armed robbery and went straight back to the joint. Oh, my God. He did not waste any time. He doesn't he doesn't know anything else but a life of crime. I've had time to reflect (laughs) on my misgivings i'm gonna do better this time yeah exactly i know what i did wrong last time (laughs) yeah so in 1975 he was transferred to an illinois prison and then the next year he again was conditionally paroled and then moved straight to utah okay utah nothing ever bad happens there the other texas right (laughs) little texas (laughs) little texas in july of 1976 Ah, bicentennial year where lots of serial killers are active. Yes, there was a lot. It was a a strange time. Yeah, it was the Um, 70s. Yeah. Gilmore robbed and murdered Max Jensen, a gas station employee in Orem, Utah. The next evening, he robbed and murdered Benny Bushnell, a motel manager in Provo. So just going on a spree. Now, the strange part of this is Gilmore killed both men, even though they complied with his request. He was like, nah. Cold. Now, Gilmore figured he wouldn't get caught if he ditched the gun, right? Yeah, If sure. there's no gun, there's no crime. No gun, no right? crime. Right? 
So in a truly Three Stooges-esque turn of events, <laughs> Gilmore decided to go to the garage where his truck was being serviced and then attempted to throw the gun in the bushes. <laughs> the gun discharged and he shot himself. Oh my god. Wait for it. He then drug his bleeding ass all over the place, leaving a little blood trail. Now, the garage mechanic, Michael Simpson, heard all of that noise of and went outside and saw Gilmore walking away all shot and bloody. Just imagine being like, no, I'm fine. It's fine. I'm good. Oh, my God. It was not, I just dropped a rock. It made a loud... Right? Bang noise. <laughs> it's a, oh, this blood? No, this is from earlier. It was a pop gun and I fell on a ketchup packet. And this scene. Is blood, yeah. <laughs> oh See, God. it tastes like <laughs> tomatoes. <laughs> so, remembering a police scanner, because again, it's the 1970s, everybody had a ham radio or a scanner of some sort. Yes. There was a call the previous night that a garage um, um, had been robbed and that a vehicle, you know, was seen. So the guy was like, I remember that. So he called the police. Um, Then on top of that, the cousin that Gilmore was living with called the police to turn him in after Gilmore came home hobbling full of bandages asking for (laughs) painkillers. Because he had fucking shot himself. Oh my god. um, Don't mind my bandages. Do you have any Dilaudid? You know what? Fair fair call. I'm being like, I'm calling the police. You just hopped up in here asking for straight up opiates. I I am not going to indulge you. I respect that. Um, Now, the police caught him trying to escape. Can't have been very quick. (laughs) Nope. Because he was hobbling. Mm -hmm. And he went straight to jail. Okay. (laughs) On October 5th, 1976, the trial began. Witnesses placed him at the scene of the crimes before they happened, so obviously he was there. The bullet casings matched a gun found on him. He didn't ditch it very well. (laughs) It was not looking good, and all the mounting evidence was like, yeah, you did it. Yeah. Now, when it came time to question, did he do this? What's up? They were also contemplating whether or not he was insane. So this is where the trial took a little weird turn. Gilmore obviously had personality disorder. And the weird part was that his team of two lawyers did little cross-examination and they rested without calling anyone for the defense. On purpose? I don't know if it was on purpose, but they might have just been really bad lawyers. Yeah. Because there's also been cases of people, like, directing their lawyers to be like, don't call any witnesses. Well. You know, don't even put up a case. There was a little bit of weirdness. Now, Gilmore obviously was not okay with this. He protested and he asked to take the stand in his own defense. And he Mm -hmm. wanted them to argue that his disassociation and personality disorder led him to have little ideas of what he was doing. Like, he had no comprehension of what he was doing. Yeah. Um. But there was also a lot of issues. They suggested calling people, and he's like, ah, they're not good enough. They're not going to do a good job. But also, like, you're his lawyer. You can kind of do whatever the fuck you want to get the case going. (laughs) Right, right. So, um, almost every psychiatrist that Gilmore saw stated they did not believe he was criminally insane. Only one doctor offered some kind of help. Okay. Dr. John Wood stated that antipsychotic drugs he received while incarcerated at Oregon State Penitentiary permanently damaged his brain. If you don't know, uh, taking the wrong drugs will mess you up, and it 
it, it potentially will mess up your ring chemistry permanently. Yeah. Um, if you ever take antipsychotics or things and you're not psychotic or if you take even the wrong if you're depressed and you take the wrong antidepressants it can intensify your depression yeah if you're not depressed and you take antidepressants it will make you suicidal so like it does bad things so if you're not suffering from whatever disorder you are and they give you the wrong medicine and you take it for a very long time it will fuck you up Mm -hmm. the other part of his insanity plea shenanigans um, they should have explored those witnesses, like, from his past, like, when he was in that jail, when yeah. he was taking those drugs, talk to people before he started taking drugs, compare his behavior, and that just didn't happen. Yeah. Um, Gilmore did suggest a couple people, and they weren't contacted, um, and then the lawyers made that list of people, and Gilmore was like, I don't want half of them. So there was a little of contention. Okay. But like I said, being a lawyer, you should have persuaded him and those witnesses and disregarded his requests yeah like you have to have something so there's a little bit of kind of shadiness in that kind of interaction yeah um they really like called it in for this trial you know they uh did not really do their duties to their fullest yeah um so gilmore took the stand (laughs) which is always a wise choice and I'm going to read oh my God. an excerpt from Every the book time. Executioner Song by Norman Mailer about this. And a quote. Gilmore was a disaster as a witness for himself. He was angry at the prosecutor and he became a cross, tough, cold, remorseless. What emerges clearly both from the transcript and the book's day-by-day account is that his lawyers never prepared Gilly- Gary Gilmore to take the stand. They put him up there and asked their questions and left him on his own as to how to phrase the answers and what to expect on cross-examination. Gilmer was torn about discussing his mental state. Years in prison and his short times on the streets had committed him to the hard guy image. He could not readily discuss fear, loss of control, despair, anguish, and self-disgust. Nor would he readily have talked to a jury and crowded courtroom about his prison experiences and the possibly devastating effects of proloxin, which was the drug that he took. He would have had to have been convicted to do that. But there is every reason to believe that he would have done it to save his life. He was never asked, much less persuaded. Yikes. Now... Unfortunately, Gilmore didn't meet the criteria for insanity due to the lack of opinion from doctors. But another fun fact, at this time, the death penalty statutes on the books allowed for people deemed insane to be put up for the death penalty. So it really wouldn't have mattered anyway. Jesus, yeah. (laughs) And also Utah. Yeah, for real. (laughs) It only took two days and the jury came back with a guilty verdict and unanimously recommended the death penalty due to the special circumstances of the crime. Which I don't really know what that was. He just killed and robbed people. So not really special circumstances, but sure, whatever. Was he <laughs> using a weapon? He used a gun. Yeah. That's like an aggravating factor. He used a gun and everything. He robbed yeah. consistently with a gun. <laughs> yeah. It's always, it's all, for most of these charges, if you're using a weapon, it makes your charge. An How aggravated else do you charge. kill someone? Yeah. Your hands can be classified as weapons. Yeah. Or it could Hello? be uh, the fact that it was a firearm versus another mm-hmm. type of weapon. Like, also, it's Utah. Yeah. Weird. Also, Utah. I'm just yeah. going to keep saying it's Utah. Yeah. Now, this case was special because Gilmore was the first person to be sentenced to death after the Supreme Court overturned the stay of death penalties. And the interesting part <laughs> is how he decided to die. 
Now, Gilmore's mother sued the state for the stay of execution. The Supreme Court refused to see the case. And against his expressed wishes, Gilmore received several stays of execution through the efforts of the American Civil Liberties Union. He didn't want them to do this. Um, The last of these occurred just hours before the rescheduling execution date of January 17th. The stay was overturned at 7.30 a.m., and the execution was allowed to proceed as planned. While on death row, because they were being – like, all these stays were happening, Gilmore attempted to commit suicide twice. He's like, please just fucking put me out of my misery. Yeah. Now, like I said, the unique aspect is the method of execution. Gilmore took advantage of Utah's law allowing a prisoner to choose the method of their execution from either hanging or firing squad. Okay. Can you guess which one he chose? Firing squad. You're right. He wanted the firing squad. (laughs) Oh, my God. He argued you can't botch shooting, but you can botch a hanging. It's true. And that is true. That's true. You can't kind of botch a shooting. It's true. But they had multiple shooters. So, like. Yeah. If you're a (laughs) stormtrooper, that doesn't matter. Yeah, no. Always missing. Pew, pew, pew. Um, Now, this is from a Times article in 1976 from November. If Gilmore is shot. Five volunteer marksmen will do the job. They will probably be law enforcement officials, though none will be from the staff of the prison 20 miles from Salt Lake City where the death sentence will be carried out. Gilmore, hooded and strapped by the neck, arms and legs to a wooden chair, will have a circular piece of black cloth pinned over his heart. Okay. Resting high-powered 30 caliber Winchester hunting rifles... On a 2x4 railing, the squad will simultaneously fire one round from 20 feet away. There is no provision for a second volley or a coupe de grace, and one rifle will be loaded with a blank so that no one will know for sure that he was responsible for the condemned man's death. So that's very standard firing squad. But I just love that they put a little pin over his heart to make sure he hit here. Like a target. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. On January, uh, in January of 1977, he was executed. And in another Times article describing the event... There is an old tannery known as the Slaughterhouse in the southwest corner of the Utah State Prison. Sat there, Gary Mark Gilmore, 36, freshly shaven and wearing a black t-shirt, crumpled white trousers, and red, white, and blue sneakers. His neck, waist, wrists, and feet were loosely bound to a chair. 26 feet away hung a sailcloth partition and five slits. Hidden behind the curtain stood five riflemen armed with a 30-30 deer rifle, four loaded with steel-jacketed shells, the fifth with a blank. He was administered his rights and had a target pinned to his heart. Hooded, his last words were, let's do it. Oh, my God. And they did. And he died. And that is the case of Gary Gilmore. Wow. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I'm actually glad you started off with all of the the death sentence moratorium and 
these insanity restrictions that plays into mine very well. Yeah, I just couldn't believe how fucking stupid the U.S. laws were and how everything was happening into the 70s and 80s. Yes. Like, what? (laughs) Yeah. So I am going to talk about Wesley Ira Perky. Now, if that name sounds familiar, we did actually talk about him very, very briefly in episode 91, I think. When we were talking about there were just before the Trump administration ended five executions that sort of went back to back to back after Mm -hmm. a long moratorium. He was part of that. So we have mentioned him briefly on the show, but I wanted to look at his whole case because like yours, sort of the back and forth of the Supreme Court is a little messy. Yeah. The whole thing's a little messy. They're notorious flip floppers. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So. Perky, born in 1952 in Wichita, Kansas, um, he, growing up, he was the subject of extraordinary abuse um, starting around six years old when his mother began sexually abusing him. Perky's father was not an angel either. He was allegedly paying prostitutes to fondle him when he was only 12. What? <laughs> yes. As well as being molested by a priest. Yep. Which is like... That's a There's lot. There's no safety. No. Your parents. No safety. A church. Nowhere. Yeah. Um, Perky reportedly suffered a significant amount of head trauma in his teenage years and early adult life, something that likely added to his troubles later in life. This is something very common when you talk about um, psychopathy or uh, murderers and serial killers. You know, you kind of have all of these common elements. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is abuse as a child. A lot Mm -hmm. of it is head trauma. Yeah. It's like they should redo the McDonald triad. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So according to a district court order granting plaintiff's motion for preliminary injunction, Perky was diagnosed with schizophrenic reaction, schizoaffective disorder, and depression superimposed with a pre-existing antisocial personality. Loving them antisocial personality disorders. Yes. And I am, there's part of me that's, I am not up on my, you know, mental illness manual handbook thingy. Mm-hmm. I forget what the name of it's called. <laughs> um, but I'm wondering if antisocial personality is still a thing that they do because that seems very, or at least the naming convention seems pretty antiquated. I think it, I think it might have been renamed. There, I mean, that happens yeah. all the time. Right. You right. know. They just put a different name on it. <laughs> right. Right. But I mean, something like having an antisocial personality, like you said, is like, mm-hmm. is that really <laughs> just being a teenager? Yeah. <laughs> it's me right now. I don't yeah. want to ever be around anyone ever. Same. I went in. I w- it was in the phase and then I was out of it. And now I am back into it. Right. Not I'm getting a phase. to that old age where I'm yeah. just like, get me be lawn. alone in a cottage far away from everyone. Yes. If you come near me, I will punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> So Perky's criminal history appears to start around 1975 when he was arrested for a burglary. This would start a series of receiving parole and then committing more crimes for a few years and sort of receiving parole. Just and like my guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have very similar cases. Yeah. Just It almost seems like maybe we should apart. do something about it instead of putting him in prison. Maybe. Weird. That's too radical. I know. It's too radical. I know. <laughs> Uh, During one of his parole releases, Perky and another man, Martin Foster, kidnapped Greg W. Kohlberg from a grocery store, forced him to drive to a vacant lot before they shot him in the arm and neck before stealing his wallet and car. Kohlberg survived. 
um, the shooting and robbery and was able to go on to the trial. And Perky was later caught and tried. He was convicted of aggravated battery and given 15 years in prison. Okay. So while in prison, Perky was reportedly combative, uncooperative. He even got stabbed twice while incarcerated. That'll happen. In relation to (laughs) some drug deals. However, in 1986, things seemed to be turning around uh, in his life. He had joined Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, He earned his associate's degree from a local community college. He was involved in drug and alcohol and mental counseling. So, like, by all accounts, he was a changed man. Yeah, rehabbing. Rehabbing, which... Like he should have done in the first place. Hello. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Are we against the prison industrial complex? Yes. Perhaps. Yes. Perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps that is a thing. Stay tuned to find out. (laughs) But according to the Kansas City Star, an evaluation performed in 1992 showed Perky had classical psychopathy, although it was also noted that, quote, his education and intelligence moderated his his antisocial tendencies. Was he highly intelligent? Um, I think... Think so. Because mine that's was also. That's the impression I get. They didn't give a certain like IQ number or anything. Okay. But, so like the um, smarter you are, the more you hate people. Okay. This makes yeah. so much sense. Yeah. I'm so smart. Is that why? <laughs> is, is that why I hate everybody? Explained by all of the degrees I have. <laughs> in 1997, after 17 years in prison, Perky was released by the parole board. Over objections from the shooting victim saying, quote, we felt he had made really good progress after 17 years. Um, We felt he was able he was suitable to be given the opportunity. So off he goes into the community. Uh And not a bad thing will happen. That's the end of my story. Why are we doing this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) A year after his release, Perky had begun working for a plumbing company Uh on October 27th, 1990. He received a call for a job at the home of Mary Ruth Bales. Now, Bales was an 80-year-old woman. She had suffered polio as a child, so she was, like, very frail. Like, Mm -hmm. really on the frail end of things. After he had arrived, Perky asked Bales for cash to purchase a piece needed to fix her sink. Mm -hmm. After getting the money, Perky left, purchased crack, pick up a sex worker, and then returned to the house with the sex worker. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Yes. Wait, what the fuck? Yeah. Zero to ten? <laughs> yes. Kind of. Kind of. There's like a... We'll talk about there's this. There's a plumber joke in there somewhere. <laughs> plumber's crack. Plumber's crack. Something about plumber's um, crack. <laughs> yeah. So he took the money, went out and bought crack, picked up a sex worker. Him and the sex worker returned to the house, and then he beats Bales to death with a claw hammer. Yeah. How did this event happen? <laughs> I can only assume what? it was some sort of drug-fueled, rage-induced thing. I thought crack just made you, like... Fall asleep. Shaky and tired. Yeah. But... I don't know. Never done crack, so I can't tell you. (laughs) Just... I mean, I also have never done crack, but, like... Yeah. From the people I've seen do crack. (laughs) Right. Um, So, police were pretty quick to track him down. Um, They brought him in. He confessed almost immediately. Uh, He was convicted and given 32 years in prison. But during the investigation into Bale's murder, 
Perky was able to cut a deal with investigators. Hmm. In exchange for information about another murder, Perky hoped to transfer from Kansas prison to federal prison, which the view is often that federal prison is a little bit better environment. Some attorneys will say federal prison is like a country club compared to state prisons, which is probably true. Hmm. Um just, I, don't, I guess all prisons don't seem great to me. No, <laughs> but if you had to be in one, you know, it seems the consensus seems to be federal prison is the place to be. Okay. Again, never been to prison, so I, I wouldn't know. Yeah, I mean, I've been arrested, but they just put you in a holding cell. That's yeah, not even no, prison. That's jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, Okay, so we're going to actually rewind a little bit to January 22nd, 1998, when Glenda Lamont, the mother of Jennifer Long, found out that her daughter had cut class. Did it all the time. Well, it... Call into school, pretend to be my mom. Yeah, yeah. And especially in the early 90s, I feel like people got... Did it and got away with it a lot more? I don't know about got away with it, but it was just like, all right, we're just not going, you know? I could sound like my mom. Real easy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So... It wasn't something totally out of the the usual, but um, Lamont got even more worried when she just didn't come home. And so she called around to find out where she was at. Yeah. (laughs) Also disappeared. She called around to find out where she was at. None of her friends had seen her or heard from her. Um, She eventually got in touch with police who listed her as a missing person. Um, That quick. Yes. It took a little bit. I'm Ooh. sorry. Not a missing person. They listed her as a runaway. Okay. In- sorry. Oh, what is that? Like endangered revive. or whatever? What yeah. What is the stupid term they use now? So this goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. They are um, – the family is like handing out missing persons posters. Long was eventually listed on the website for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Police were investigating, but they literally had no leads, not a clue mm-hmm. what had happened. Until they spoke with Wesley Ira Perky. Hmm. Okay. So, what Perky told authorities okay. was that on January 22nd, he had been driving from Lansing to Kansas City for a job interview with the plumbing company. After the interview, Perky left smoked crack before stumbling upon Jennifer Long walking down the road. Is his crack laced with angel dust or something? Because, like, crack does not do that. <laughs> yeah, who knows? So he pulled over, asked Long if she wanted to party, and... I got some crack! (laughs) Cool. (laughs) And, yep, that's the car I'd get into. Mm -hmm. Um, She said yes and got into his vehicle. The two drove to a liquor store where they picked up some booze, and then Perky told Long that he needed to head home. And she was like, okay, well, I don't really want to go with you, so, like, I'm just going to hop out here, Mm -hmm. let me out of the car, And it was at this point um, when Long attempted to get out of the vehicle that Perky pulled a knife from the glove box, forcing her to remain in the car. The two drove back to Perky's home where he forced Long into the basement and raped her. At some point, Long attempted to escape again out of the basement, but Perky captured her and then stabbed her to death in her chest, face and neck. Not being too bothered by this, Perky went out to a bar where he stayed for a few hours because that crack normal yeah and then after buying an electric saw perky returned to his home where he dismembered long's body and then placed it in a fireplace to burn Mm -hmm. now of course as we know fire does not get rid of everything no 
So Perky took the ashes and what was left of the remains and placed them in a septic pond in Clearwater, Kansas. Also does not get rid of everything. <laughs> no. Does not. Yep. Um, Acid. Acid is the way to go. <laughs> we do Why? not condone any of this. <laughs> um, if you're going to do crime, do crime well, okay? Yeah, right. <laughs> Perky was convicted of Bale's murder in 2000, after which he confessed to Long's killing. Of course, federal investigators were brought in because when he had kidnapped Long, he had kidnapped her in Missouri and then brought her over state lines into Kansas, where she was murdered. Mm -hmm. And authority believed that Perky was telling the truth due to the amount of detail that he included. It was something only that people that were close to her would know. Yeah. So by November 2003, a federal jury convicted Perky of kidnapping, rape, and murder for which he received the death penalty, and Perky was subsequently transferred to Terre Haute, Indiana to await execution. However, as we've seen, Perky's story was not a simple one after Mm -hmm. this. So later, Perky said that he made up the story about moving along across state lines now, according to the Marshall Project, quote, Perky cooperated because he had spent most of his life in prison already. He was on parole when he committed the murders, and he believed serving life in federal prison would be preferable to a Kansas prison. He also said federal prosecutors had assured him that they would not be seeking the death penalty, but then did anyway. Again, okay. this is according to Perky. Yeah. I would not be surprised if that happened either. Like, I also want to mm-hmm. say that. Take it with a grain of salt, but like, not out of the realm of yeah, possibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, following his conviction, Perky began his appeals process, focusing mainly on ineffective assistance of counsel related to his defense lawyer at trial, uh, Frederick Duchart. Appeals lawyers claimed that he did not do his due diligence during investigations before trial. Um, They also claimed the investigators that he hired lacked the training in the specialized type of investigation necessary. It wasn't until... Perky's appeals process that attorneys discovered the information about his abusive childhood, um, as well as the the head trauma issues like that was all found out after his initial conviction, after he was already sentenced. Duchard, of course, has defended his performance as Perky's attorney. Again, um, this is from the the Marshall Project, quote, Duchart, the trial lawyer, lawyer, has defended his failure to interview people who knew these stories, writing in an affidavit that many of his decisions were made as part of his defense strategy. But a law professor told The Guardian, you can't possibly know what you have never bothered to learn. That is not strategy. It's a failure to prepare. Mm-hmm. Which I agree with. Yeah. Um, And that does seem to be like the prevailing argument when attorneys are brought up on ineffective assistance of counsel like it was a strategy it's all Mm -hmm. strategy Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the um i feared for my life defense (laughs) yeah you know i hate to say sometimes it is strategy but like again is it Mm -hmm. (laughs) so at the time that perky was placed on death row we were again in a time period where no federal executions were taking place Mm -hmm. This was during a a period where um, – so by now we are doing all of our federal death uh, sentences with the three-drug cocktail mm-hmm. that includes pentobarbital. This was part of the – they were having some issues getting drugs in and yeah. expiring. Supply chain. And mm-hmm. all sorts of things, <laughs> yeah. Inflation, right? <laughs> anyway, so – 
that's why all of these executions had been stopped for a while. Is there were some questions as to, well, we'll talk about it. <laughs> we will talk about it. So everything was on hold, that is, until July 2019, when the federal government announced executions would start taking place again after almost two decades. Perky was selected as one of five inmates to move to execution, and his date was set for December 13th, 2019. However, Perky and three other plaintiffs brought a cause of action that argued pentobarbital, which again is one of the drugs in the three-drug cocktail, violated Federal Death Penalty Act of 1994. There were also claims that Perky didn't have the mental capacity to be executed. By this time, he was 67. He had started suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's, Mm. and he was at the time found fit to stand trial, but since then his mental state had deteriorated Mm -hmm. quite a bit. Eventually, the way was cleared for Perky to be executed after a 5-4 decision from the Supreme Court that I believe was on Bonk, um, which means they just didn't hear it as a regular court case. They just read through all the stuff. So, So something to note about the dissent from, this is from Death Penalty Info, quote, Justice Sotomayor authored the principal dissent, joined by Justices Breyer, Ginsburg, and Kagan. Sotomayor sharply criticized the court's decision to shortcut judicial review and permit the execution of an individual who may well be incompetent. She rejected the prosecutor's assertion that Perky should be executed because he labeled his claim a civil rights claim related to his execution instead of a habeas corpus claim related related to his death sentence and filed in the court considering the constitutionality of the federal execution process instead of the court in which he had been tried. So partially uh, uh, filing under the wrong thing, Mm -hmm. essentially. It is undisputed that there is a district court in which Perky made properly, may properly pursue his competency claim and his request for competency hearing. She wrote, given the evidence of Perky's Alzheimer's diagnosis and his history of delusions, hallucinations, and paranoia, Justice Sotomayor concluded that the government has not come close to showing the district court erred in finding Perky likely to succeed on the merits of his claims. So essentially what all of that means is he a, a district court had found that the claim itself they threw it out before even hearing it because it was unlikely to succeed on its merits mm-hmm. um but the dissent said differently of course the dissent was the four of the five four votes so mm-hmm. um perky after this decision did make an attempt to file the claims um in his in the appropriate court mm-hmm. but was unable to succeed on any of them. So on Thursday, July 16th, 2020, Perky was executed in Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, he was the second of five executions to resume that July under the Trump administa- administration, who would continue to rush through this flurry of executions just before his administration ended. Like there was some taking place like literally <laughs> weeks, like two weeks before his administration ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the execution, an autopsy on Perky's body showed signs that he had suffered extreme pain during his execution, something revealed in a filing to delay the execution of rapist and murderer Keel, Keith Nelson. Um, the autopsy shows severe collateral acute pulmonary edema and frothy pulmonary edema in trachea and main stem bronchi, meaning Perky likely felt like he was drowning, mm-hmm. um, which is like one of the chief complaints of of this combination of drugs. Yeah. 
um, because they also paralyze your body. Mm-hmm. So, you can still feel it. Yeah. Yeah. But the people watching don't know. Like, you can't mm-hmm. visibly tell that something is wrong necessarily because your entire body is fucking paralyzed. <laughs> of course, the government is denying any of these claims, yeah. saying it totally went off without a hitch and pentobarbital has been deemed humane. Which is even more interesting looking at the most recent decision in Ham v. Reeves. So essentially what they did, and this decision just came out like um, a couple weeks ago. Like this is very new. Um, Essentially what they did is they cleared the way for a man who fell well within range of intellectual disability to be executed by the state of Alabama. Um, It's an interesting case that looks at the type of drugs used in executions, the requirements to choose an an alternate execution method because there is this idea that the 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 time period the window that you have is very short mm-hmm. um, and not long enough for an inmate or uh, a person on death row to truly understand like what the options are yeah. because pro tip you can still get executed by firing squad if you can prove um, a reasonable need yeah. to do that mm-hmm. but the window to make that decision is like. A month. It's like 30 days, which is not enough time, Um, especially when you're talking about trying to get legal counsel in to explain things. Mm -hmm. Even just like drafting documents. Oh, my God. It takes forever. (laughs) So long. So long. So I'm going to include a link to a really, really great Vox article on the topic that really goes into some of the bigger issues um, in Hams v. Reeves Mm -hmm. because – it's honestly going to have an effect on every single execution going forward from now yeah. on until any rulings get changed. So, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Lethal injection is not humane at all. No. And it's been botched multiple oh my God. times. So many times. So. <laughs> yeah. And in some places, they've even started bringing back the electric gold chair just because. Which is also not a great choice. No. Just because they're having issues getting the drugs that they need to perform these executions. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Supply chains. <laughs> not great, guys. Like I said, I am very anti-death sentence because, again, for a lot of reasons, reliability of juries, innocent yeah. people being put on death row humane ways of you know killing murderers which sounds strange i realize but like anyway i wonder if they're gonna like do the death pods that came out for you that would be interesting (laughs) that would be really but that's gas right i don't know i don't know what it is i've never looked into it but i saw that it was a humane way of death yeah if anyone's curious what we're talking about it was what sweden or the netherlands or um Came out with death pods that essentially help in assisted suicide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in so that a there's pod. no person related involved, supposedly, yeah. but someone has to set the pod up. So right. still technically someone's involved. But it's yeah. fine. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Look it up. Anyway, so that death is. Death pods. There you go. <laughs> yes. So that is the story of Wesley Ira Perky. Before you do something completely awful that may put you on death row, first of all, please don't. Please stop committing armed <laughs> <Just robberies>. don't. <laughs> Um, but second of all, maybe check out this podcast. Hi, I'm Ellen, and I'm scared we exist in the Matrix. I'm Jaslyn, and I'm bad at ad-libbing. <laughs> and you're listening to High, High Expectations. Expectations, the promo. 
For our international listeners, you can appreciate our cute New Zealand accents. For our local listeners, you might bump into us in the street three times in the same hour. Our podcast is about pop culture, sexuality, relationships, interesting hobbies, banter, and ragging on each other. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or anywhere you might like to find podcasts. Yay! Please subscribe. Goodbye! Original. That's been our show. We did it. That's it. <laughs> That's it. I've been talking all morning <laughs> about how much I'm looking forward to the nap I'm going to take after we're done. Yeah. I don't know that I'm life. Ready. Sorry. I'm so, my body is I'm immediately ready. getting a haircut, then I have yes. to go work in my studio. It's, Gotta go look fly. Okay. Yeah. That's I'm okay. a very busy woman. Yes. <laughs> um, do we have anything to talk about this week? I don't. No. Nope. I we, don't think so. Uh, tennis comes out, we'll be done with our. Yeah. Our live show. We have our anniversary coming. That's about yes. it. We will talk about all this on the next episode because mm-hmm. um, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So for us in real time. Yes. <laughs> so we will talk about um, the Dark Matters show. Mm-hmm. We will talk about anniversary things. Yeah. Probably. We'll sing our Chili's anniversary song to each other. Yes. Oh, my God. We what do year do that. is it this year? We do do that. This is going to be five years. Mm-hmm. I think I... Is this really going to be five years of yeah. doing this show? I already set up posts about it, so oh I've already God. forgotten what oh what year God. this is. Well, in terms of like gifts, we'll save <laughs> we'll save the re- the gift reveal. What mm-hmm. what the anniversary <laughs> or the <pot>. traditional <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gift is for the next one? But mm-hmm. until then, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zashevsky. The Enigma. <laughs> This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all evil in some form.